Well, we're looking at the mystery of Christmas. As we do that, we're tying it in to the Advent season and the different emphasis what we have each week about uh, the Advent. And so uh, great, great services coming up for you. The choir's ready, the band's ready, you know, the 930 service to choir and this service to band to bring you some really great concentrated services on Christmas during the season. But Christmas Eve is a very special time. Services at three and five. And this is an opportunity not only for you to bring your family, but also to bring your friends. Because people will come on Christmas Eve, come to church on Christmas Eve when they won't come any other time of the year. And we'll have a big crowd at both of those services. And so you need to uh, uh, be cognizant of that. But we're going to have a great and wonderful time during that time. So who is the one person that you want to invite, or uh, somebody maybe that needs the Lord, somebody's been out of church a long time, somebody in your neighborhood, who is the one that you would like to bring? Pray about that and really concentrate on that December 24th time. Well, as we open up our Bibles, we want to turn to John chapter 3 and look at one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible, but also looking at those verses following that most popular verse. And so as we're looking at this, the mystery of love that we have, we're we're thinking, okay, Christmas is a season of great love. You know, when Jesus came and uh, the promise was made that he was going to come to earth, here's what the Bible said. It says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ was first presented and introduced to us during the Christmas season. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That great love. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is love. And so we have a conflicting uh, and very complex look at the love of God. I mean, after all, we have some people in our world today, mostly outside the church, but sometimes inside the church, that would say, look, God is a God of love and that's it. Not a God of wrath, not a God of judgment, not a God necessarily of grace or whatever, all powerful. All we know is he's a God of love. And anything that's not, it's in the Bible that does not tell me that Jesus Christ is all about love, then it's not, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. On the other hand, you've got Christians that sometimes don't believe in the love of God, maybe as much as those are outside the church. I mean, it doesn't take much to get us to doubt. I was, uh, we, Pam and I were coming home from our uh, time off at Thanksgiving, and we were really involved in a lot of traffic. And I thought to myself, somewhere in this traffic jam, this bumper to bumper, have you ever been there? I, oh, 95, 75, sure, you're, you're sitting there, and you're thinking, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have put me here, you know. <laughs> if God really loved me, my computer wouldn't be freezing up right now. Or my phone that you're on maybe right now wouldn't be freezing out. And so the little things of life, it doesn't take much. But then again, there's big stuff too, right? You're sitting out in the hospital waiting room wondering if somebody's going to make it or not. You're at a funeral where a loss or a loved one has passed away. And you're wondering, God, if you really loved me, why all the suffering in the world? Well, we come to our text today. And it presents the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ. And yet we find before we even get through three verses, 
the love of God is very complex. So let's unravel it a little bit. First of all, let's read the text. It says in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hey, you're with me so far, right? Everything's great so far. Everybody can agree with that one. But then let's look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. How can that be? How can God say, I love you, but yet I condemn you? How can God condemn anyone? How can God judge anyone? How the balance of scripture, how, how can we explain this? It's almost as, as though God's saying, look, I love you, but. And so let's look at it. First, I want us to simply look at what we're describing when we're talking about uh, the definition of love, seeing and your first point, seeing the love of God. Verse 16 says, for God so loved. Now, what, what Greek word is this? If you don't know any Greek, and many of you claim that you do, but you really, if you've never studied Greek, chances are you know one word in the Greek language, agape, because you've heard it preached all your life. Agape, that unconditional love, that selfless love, sacrificial love. This is the kind of love that's presented in the Bible. In fact, it's presented as a one-way love because no one can love unconditionally but God. There's always conditions to our love. There, there has to be a limit somewhere, but the Bible speaks of God's love as being limitless. In fact, let me read you a couple of verses about God's love. 1 John 4, 19. We love God because he first loved us. We didn't initiate God's love. He initiated, God, he initiated his love for us. We just love him then in return. Malachi 3.6 tells us it never changes. For the Lord, I am the Lord, he says, I do not change. God's love is unending. Jeremiah 31.3, for I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Well, he says, for God so loved what? The world. And somebody says, well, the world means uh, everybody. Or somebody else says, well, the world must mean just believers in that kind of sphere or culture. What does it mean? Well, this word cosmos really just means the world. It means every single person in the entire world. But then he goes on to say in verse 18, he's going to condemn. So what about the complexity of all this? Well, the, the object here is the world. There's an Old Testament passage. In fact, there's many of them. But there's an Old Testament passage that really uh, kind of streams right along with the passage here in John. And it's found in Psalm 145. And in this psalm, he says this, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed, bowed down. Now notice it says all. The eyes of the Lord look to you and you give them their food in, in due season. Who? All. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. What kind of love is it talking about here? We commonly refer to this as a universal love. God created the world. He created everyone in the world and he loves all of his creation. Therefore, he gives what we sometimes refer to as common grace. He gives wisdom. 
he gives uh, possessions to those who are not followers of him. He gives education to those. He gives uh, to be born in a certain country at a certain time. He gives blessings to really all the world, the beauty, the blessing, the strength, and all humanity because he loves everybody. However, even in the psalm, there's a shift. And in verse 18, it says this, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. How in the world can that be? He says, now there's a shift. Now he says, there's a special bond. There's a special relationship now between those who don't call on the Lord in truth and those who do. What is the difference here? Why in the world can't we uh, think about this and, and balance it out? Why do we have to say, well, no, God is love and there is no uh, repercussions for any of the actions that we take? Why is that? Well, let's look at simplifying the love of God. After all, it's, it's com again, it's complex. He says in this verse, he says, whoever believes in him will not perish. Now, this word perish in the original language simply means to uh, pass away. It means to put to death, and it refers to eternal death. And so perishing is a bad thing. And Jesus, it says in verse 17, it says very plainly again, I did not come to this world to condemn it. That's, that's not my purpose here. My purpose is to save it. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, it's condemned already. I didn't come to condemn it. It's condemned already. Why? Well, it hasn't believed in me, but, but what about not believing in him? Well, there's, there's a wrath there because of the, the sin that's unforgiven. So let's look at it closer. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners separated from God. From the time Adam sinned against God, there's a separation that occurred between mankind, human, the, the human race, and God himself. There's a separation, there's a chasm, and it's caused there by sin. And because sin has come into the world, it becomes like a cancer. It spreads through everyone born of Adam, all the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, all the way up to us. And it's like a cancer that goes throughout the world and it hurts people. And it, it has a cause of separation between us and God. The Bible puts it this way. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here's the, here's the thing. When we think about the wrath of God, for example and wrath coming upon sin, we think about our own human emotion. God's emotions are certainly there, but it's not in the same sense that we'll see in just a moment. So we look at wrath, and then we look at love. Now, where do we get that concept of love? And somebody says, well, you know, we get it in nature. You look at nature and the beauty of nature, it's just a wonderful thing. And, you know, you look out on the world and the oceans and the mountains. Anne Dillard wrote a book on nature. And she decided that there's no way nature teaches the love of God once she saw a water bug sucking out a brain of a frog. 
Now, I know some of you are, are way too young for this, but many of you have, you know, uh, Mutual of Omaha's. Oh, some of you know that one. Wild Kingdom. Yeah, that's where Jim went out, you know, wrestled the alligator while the other guy, the older guy stood in the tent talking about it, you know? And I always wondered, man, I, I know Jim wishes he could get older for that, you know? But anyway, we, we find Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And you see lions, and they, they film them coming around the prey and ripping it apart. Nature's violent. If you don't believe me, how many of you have ever been through a hurricane of some type? Oh, many of you here. And others are new to Florida. <laughs> You've been through a hurricane, and it's devastating. It levels buildings, rips up trees. Nature is violent. We don't learn about the love of God through nature. And someone else says, well, we learn about it through history. Did you realize that before Christianity came about, you had countries conquering other countries and enslaving them and believing it was okay to do. After all, you're, you're making slaves out of this, these people that, so they won't hurt your, your family. It was perfectly okay to do. In fact, when the Bible comes along now and starts talking about love, it was foreign to many, many kingdoms. Rome was a beast at heart. But so was the Greek Empire, the Turkish Empire. Every empire you can think of all the way down through history, they were, they were violent, they were beasts, they were oppressive governments. Then come from history. And what about other religions? Well, you won't find prior to Christianity. Now, a lot of people have copied Christianity, but prior to Christianity, you won't find love in religions. You, you will find a, a lack of forgiveness Islam, for example, doesn't think about a relationship with God. And think about it for just a moment. Who are, who are we to think that an almighty, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, righteous, holy God would want a relationship with us? Why, why are we so... Doesn't that sound rather arrogant to you? It sounds arrogant to most religions of the world. Where do we find that? Where do we find these things? Well, somebody else says, well, I think that you just find it in our minds. You know, God just sort of puts it in our minds about love and, and uh, we look about all the things around us and how beautiful it is. Listen, all of us are susceptible to the information put in our brains. We can find that out in our political se uh, season. You have one group that says, well, this guy uh, did something. He ought to go, you know, it's all in the newspapers. He ought to go to jail. This person did something. He shouldn't go to jail. Let me ask you something. Were you there? Were you, were you an eyewitness? Well, let me ask you something else. Were you on the jury of any of these trials? No. Then how do you know? How do you have the information? Because of what's been fed to you and what's been fed to me. The same way is true in life. We have a concept of God based upon how we take some of the facts that have already been processed, by the way, through the human mind, and we take it and process and, and apply it to us, and it can change in so many ways. It's totally unreliable. Where does the love of God come from? It comes from the Bible. It does. All throughout the Bible, now the Jewish people knew this, the Bible says, yea, I've loved you with an everlasting love. 
And so all through the Old Testament, we find the love of God. The Jewish people knew that, but then it's introduced here to the world in the New Testament. For God so loved the entire world. It comes through the word of God. Now, here's the thing. Whatever has come through the word of God here in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, is also in verse 18, where God says, you've, you've been condemned already. How can you believe verse 16 and not believe verse 18? How can you believe Psalm 145, 14 through 17 without believing 18 through 20? It comes from the same Bible. And so somehow we've got to work through this conflict and complexity of what's going on. Well, let me just say, the wrath of God and the wrath of man are not the same thing. There's an anger there with man and an embarrassment over that anger. Now, I know I'm not speaking to you, but sir, surely there's someone listening somewhere that can identify with this. You've gotten angry before. You've embarrassed yourself. So what did you do? Well, if you were going to own up to it, as we should, you go back to those people and you say, oh, look, you know, I, I really embarrassed my, you didn't say that, but I'm sorry I became so emotional. It's never anger, you know. I'm not bitter or nothing. Um, but I, I got, I'm sorry I got so emotional. I've had a bad week. You know, my wife and I were in a fight. Or uh, I think I might lose my job. I've been on a lot of stress lately. Why? You've embarrassed yourself because you've revealed what is in your heart to everybody else. God's never embarrassed. Never embarrassed. It, it's the difference between this. Suppose someone maybe in um, your household was violated in some way, say a murder. They broke into your house and they, they killed someone when you weren't there. And they caught the person who did it and they put them on trial. And maybe there's someone here who would be so angry, they would say, hey, look, if they let him off, I'm gonna get him myself. That's how angry you are. You're there in the courtroom every day hoping they would just nail him, nail him over and over and over again with the evidence. And you're emotional. But the judge, on the other hand, he hears the evidence, he hears the jury's verdict, and he says, okay, I'm sentencing you to life in prison. Next case. It's a judicial decision that he's making. It may not be a part of all emotion. But basically, he's not involved in that angry type of way. God's anger or wrath comes about judiciously. Why? Well, because secondly, I would say, God is, is judicial in his wrath and not emotional, but also every sin is against God. Everything that we've done in our life is, is against maybe somebody else, but it's really against God. God has set the law and just like he did with Adam and Eve and they partook of the one thing he told them not to do. It was an offense to God. It was a, a separation. It was a stab in the heart to God. I was talking to one of our staff members not too long ago. In fact, several of us, I think, were talking. And uh, we brought up this whole idea. See, we, we talk about theological things every once in a while, you know. And uh, we were talking about this. And, well, well somebody asked me, Pastor, uh, how... Some, God could send someone to hell forever. 
And one of the other staff members spoke up and he said, well, I think maybe it's because, I was asked that too, and I think it was maybe because that's how long it would take for us to pay for our own sin because the sin was so great against God. Every sin against, is against God. But then also, God hates anything that will hurt us. Now you think about sin for just a moment. Can you think about any sin that someone could commit that wouldn't affect someone else? Even some of the times where you had nothing to do with it, or you were just driving down the road and some, suddenly somebody T-boned you. Ran red light, wasn't your fault. How often can you think about something that doesn't affect anyone? See, God hates things that will hurt us and therefore he wants to eradicate sin. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Sin is like that cancer, as I said, coming into the world, spreading, spreading, spreading to every generation, to every person. And he says, one day we're gonna all get to heaven. I'm gonna eradicate it. How am I gonna do that before we get to heaven? How am I gonna take all these people to heaven? Well, I'm gonna pay for the sin myself, which we'll come into here in just a moment. Because how do you receive all this? I want you to look. It says, not perish, but have eternal life. Then in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, here's the problem with thinking about anything else but the love of God. When we think about anything else but the love and the mercy and the grace of God, and we, we come to the other thing about, oh, wait a minute, there's consequences for what we do. There are consequences for how we act. In fact, without that, there cannot be civility. In this world of chaos, we cannot have a civil government. We cannot have uh, civil rights of every individual in our world unless there are consequences to the wrong things that we do. And to think about, well, if you, if you just let everybody do what they want to do, they'll do the right thing, is, is totally contradictory, not only to the Bible, but to real life. So you have to have some sort of retribution. But here's what happens. The light comes into the world and people run from the light. Now, Jesus is the light. It's, it's like you're in, uh, maybe some of you parents, uh, you have teenagers. And I know I was this way when I was a teenager. You know, I kept my light off all the time. Uh, I walk out of the room, cut the light off. Well, man, you were so good about saving electricity. No, I didn't want my parents to see the mess my room was in. You know, I mean, you're, you're in a dark room and you walk in and you think, oh, you know, at last they cleaned up their room and you cut on the light and you say, oh my goodness, there's chaos here. Are there peanut butter sandwiches under the pillow or not? I mean, I don't know. It's bad. Why? Because you cut on the light. When you and I come to the light and it could be just simply a scriptural message like this one, but any way that God comes to you and what happens is you begin to see yourself in the light as God sees you, and you don't like it. I'm not going to change there. I know what I believe, and I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be condemned that way. And therefore, I'm running into the darkness and listening to the darkness crowd, and the darkness crowd says, everything's okay. Everything's okay. He says, when you want to do and continue to do the things that are not pleasing in God's sight, you run from the light. 
But then he goes on to say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It says, look, if you want to be in darkness, that's what you do. But if you want to come to the light, you begin to believe. And in verse 16, what, what is he looking toward? The book of John is all filled with this one word. Believe, believe, believe. Then Jesus has all these encounters in the book of John with all these people. You know, the woman at the well and, and other people that, that he healed. And finally, at the end of the book, we find what he came for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did he give him? Well, he gave him in birth. But the reason he gave him in birth, so he can give him in death. We find the love of God and the wrath of God meet together at the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was about to be crucified, he went and prayed. And he prayed three times. The Lord would take this cup, this cup of wrath from him. And then he says, not my will, but thine be done. It was on the cross that God showed his love but at the cross that God poured out his wrath upon a certain individual, Jesus Christ. He took our wrath for us, the cup of wrath. He said it this way in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have, already, I have the authority to take it up again, the charge I have received from my Father. This is the charge. This is the purpose. This is the reason I'm here. I'm taking up my life and I'm giving it. No one's taking it from me. I'm giving it in order to pay for your sin. Now the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have come to the light and believed on him. So what does that mean? That means there is no condemnation. There is no wrath for anyone that has come to know Christ. Why? Because God has had the wrath of God and the love of God meet at the cross and you believed in the truth. As Psalm 145 says, that we call upon him in the truth, the truth of the gospel. That God has already poured out his wrath that was meant for me and meant for you on the body of Jesus Christ. So he says, well, I just, don't, I just don't know if I believe all that. I mean, after all, I'm not such a bad person. I think God loves me. Let me ask you this. How much did it cost? How much did it cost your God to love you? But you say, well, nothing. Well, it, might, it costs my God, his son, who died on the cross for us. He proved it. He demonstrated it. And here, here's the beautiful part of it. Sometimes we don't appreciate. You, know, you talk to someone, for example, and you say, you know, I don't agree with what you did, but I want you to know I'm, I'm with you. I love you. I'm on your team no matter what. You say, well, that's real good. But then they get mad because you don't agree with them of what they did. You're not excusing what they did. What is more powerful for you to say, look, I love you because I agree with what you did and agree with your life, or is it more powerful to say, I disagree with what you did, but I love you anyway? This is the love of God. He says, I disagree with you on what you did. I don't support how Dwayne Mercer has lived. 
probably the age of 16. But I love you anyway. And I sent my son to die on the cross and he took your wrath for me and now for me. And therefore now I am no longer under that condemnation. You say, well, well, wait a minute, pastor. I still go through trial. I still go through adversity. Yeah, but it's as a son, as a child, we've been adopted into his family. I, I, I just had an opportunity to have um, dinner this past week with a few pastors. And one of the guys that was there was Jerry Haig, Dr. Jerry Haig, who is the president CEO of the what used to be called the Florida Baptist Children's Home. Now it's it's really nationwide, so it's called One More Child. So right over here in Lakeland. And so we'll just say, we support them, but we'll just say we're not only going to support them, but some of you, some of you are going to go and you're going to minister there. So yeah, I'd like to drop by for, I don't know, maybe once, try it out. So you try it out and you fall in love with those kids. And you think, yeah, our church really needs to support them even more if we can. In fact, I'm going to give some of my own money and I'm going to start going uh, once a month. It's going to be a priority of my life to be here once a month. And you start falling in love with those kids. It's just great. And some of them, boy, they just don't make it. Some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them stay there and they're not adopted. But then you sort of have a connection with this one little girl. You don't even know why. She's not the prettiest there. She's not the most outgoing. She's not the funniest. But there's something of a bond there. And every time you go, you talk with her. You minister to her. You try to help her with things like homework or whatever you can do. And one day, maybe you and your husband, you and your wife, say, you know, I think God may be leading us to adopt this little girl. What do you think? Let's pray about it. So you go through all the stuff about adopting and then the time comes and you sit down with that little girl on one of those monthly visits and you say, you know, we just really have fallen in love with you. We would love to have you come and live in our home. We'd like to adopt you. She knows what that means. And without a word, tears start coming down her cheeks. And she can't, she's so choked up. She can't, she can't even say the word. She just nods her head. So you take her home. So what do you do? Well, I, I visit her once a month, right? I, I put some money in the bank, set aside a little money in the bank for her. No. You adopt her and bring her in as your child, spending more time with them than you would at, with the rest of the kids at uh, the home. But also you bless her. And yet you have to discipline her. If you do not correct her, if you do not discipline her, she will grow up to be so unbalanced and so probably filled with sin and wrongdoing and undisciplined in life and never really amount to what she could amount to. So what do you do? You, you dig in, you love them, but you discipline them and bring even sometimes adversity in their life and certainly consequences in their life when they do wrong because you want her to grow up to be something special. And that's the way God deals with us. Not condemnation, not his wrath, but as a child, he deals with us in discipline. Now the question would come, where are you? Are you outside of God 
and trying to be in the darkness and trying just to say, oh, the love of God, and everything, everything's going to be okay. I'm not, not going to worry about it. Are you willing to face the reality of where you even find the concept of God's love and the Bible and to deal with the other things that surround that love as well and deal with the fact that God proved his love toward you and that, yes, he didn't agree with you. Yes, we were in sin. But yet, even in spite of that, the Bible even calls us enemies of God. In spite of that, he died on the cross for you. And just like the little girl in the orphanage, you just simply look to Jesus and say, yes. He's done everything for you. All the background work's been done. The dying on the cross has been done. Resurrection has been done. The calling of the spirit, the conviction of the heart. Already been, is do, he's doing that now. Then you just simply say, yes, I want to be your child. Now, what about you today? Wouldn't you like to be his child? If you've never made that decision, if you don't know that you have, let me give you the opportunity to do that right now. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You can pray a prayer with me. He says, call upon the name of the Lord in truth. I've given you the truth, just straight out of the Bible. You can argue with me and, hey, I'm wrong a lot, but the Bible's not. And so if we look at the scripture, I want to ask you, what about you? Wouldn't you like to be his child? Wouldn't you like to say yes? Would you pray with me? right now. Lord God, I want to say yes. Yes to forgiveness of sins. Yes to your love. Yes to the truth of the cross as you died for me. I want to say yes. Yes to you today. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Guide me in this life. Oh God, I pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.